what we aim to do is to try and capture information about those kind of atrocities so that, you know, later there might be some kind of justice or accountability mechanism. We might be able to put this information towards that and hold people to account for their actions. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 17th, 2022. Open source investigations, sometimes referred to as OSINT, or open source intelligence, have been crucial to public understanding of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. An enormous number of researchers have devoted their time to sifting through social media posts, satellite images, and even Google Maps to track what's happening in Ukraine and debunk false claims about the conflict. This week on our Arbiters of Truth series on the online information ecosystem, we devoted the show to understanding how open source investigations work and why they're important. Evelyn Duick and I spoke to Nick Waters, the lead on justice and accountability at Bellingcat, one of the most prominent groups devoted to conducting these types of investigations. We talked about the crucial role played by open source investigators in documenting the conflict in Syria, well before the war in Ukraine, and how the field has developed since its origins in the Arab Spring and the start of the Syrian civil war. And Nick walked us through the mechanics of how open source investigations actually happen, and how social media platforms have helped, and hindered, that work. Before we begin, I want to note that there are some brief but somewhat graphic descriptions of violence in this conversation, just because of the nature of what we're discussing. Please be aware of that before you start listening. It's the Lawfare Podcast, March 17th. How open source investigators are documenting the war in Ukraine. I'd like to start at the very beginning, uh, because it's a very good place to start. And if you could tell our listeners what OSINT is. Yeah, so OSINT is open source intelligence. By open source, it it means pretty much any uh, type of information that you can access, even if you have to pay a little bit of money for. You don't have to have a particular security clearance. You don't have to be part of a particular group of people. You don't have to be a particular nationality in order to access that information. One of the things we want to talk about is is the way that open source investigations have kind of transformed conflict and how it's evolved over time. But to stage set a little, could you talk a little bit about what kind of information has been available and important through OSINT during the Russian invasion of Ukraine? So how has it shaped what we know about the conflict and how we understand what's happening? Sure. I would say that this kind of open source information is the, is the primary way that people both, you know, Kind of journalists or people sitting at home and indeed right up to policymakers are actually understanding the majority of the situation. What we have is, you know, large populations, both in Russia and Ukraine, Belarus, uh, who have access to, you know, a smartphone, which can take a picture and video and then upload to the internet, Twitter, TikTok, whatever. And the result is, you know, huge amounts of information because people like taking pictures of things that are interesting and say a train with you know 120 tanks in it is pretty interesting it's something you want to share with your friends uh, and so what we've seen is really just huge amounts of information coming out uh, from russia belarus and ukraine both in terms of the build-up to to the invasion and also the invasion itself uh, as well as what what is actually happening within the those population centers in ukraine at the moment I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit more about the fine-grained detail of the methodology, because as you said just then, you know, there's a flood of information coming out. There's so much footage coming from all sorts of directions. So if you hear that Russia is invading Ukraine, what's the first thing that you and the team at Bellingcat do to start gathering that information and sorting through it to start compiling something useful out of it rather than just sort of this, you know, massive flood of, of data and images? Yeah, I mean, first thing we do is kind of sit there for about an hour, kind of in shock and just like stare at Twitter. And then oh, we so have- pretty much like the rest <laughs> of us, Ken. <laughs> so, oh, I'm yeah. basically an OSINT oper- uh, expert, apparently. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> and then really, actually, to be honest, like the first the first kind of uh, few hours was spent just looking at various Twitter feeds and trying to work out, you know, what, what was happening, where and when and how, how to deal with the information. Because until you see what kind of information is actually starting to emerge, it's kind of difficult to know precisely what to do with it. In our case, it became pretty evident. In fact, it was evident even before the invasion that if an invasion were to take place, what we would see is quite a lot of fighting in, in urban areas. And knowing the 
Russian army is very utterly dependent. And also, judging from the actions in, in Syria, we were guessing that what we would see is a lot of like long-range fires, use of artillery, uh, use of ballistic missiles and so on within uh, civilian population centers, which is so far as we can tell what has been happening. So basically, we started to collect images and videos showing what we believed was uh, civilian harm. Um, and we've been collecting that and keeping that in a, in a database for to use sea data for later investigations. So I want to talk more in a bit about, you know, you, you mentioned Syria and and oh, the role of us in the Syri- Syrian civil war and how it's changed since then. But before we get to that, I mean, what is it that allows you to do this kind of work? Is it just that so many people have, you know, phones, computers, ability to film and upload, you know, material to the internet that there is so much documented by satellites, Google Maps, whatever you want to name, that it's just kind of impossible to hide a military buildup and invasion of the kind that we're that we're seeing? Or is there something else that makes this kind of work possible? No, it's certainly the first. The kind of conjunction of uh, social media, smartphones, and of available satellite imagery, uh, which is available to, to members of civil society rather than being preserved for you know the government and uh, and militaries have have really produced a, uh, an inflection point within civil society's ability to deal with this kind of information. We are talking about an an incredibly powerful information network that is was kind of envisaged you know in the after the second war with the idea of societal verification of, of nuclear weapons but was never put into practice because it was almost utopian in scale. And the reality is that now we're basically everyone is doing that now just kind of by mistake uh, because we we all like taking pictures of interesting things and posting online. And when conflict becomes involved, it's not just about uh, that kind of interest. It's also about the, the urge to bear witness as well. You know, people want to show the world what is happening to them, to their family, to, to their communities. And it, it's something that we've seen across the world. I've seen it in, in Syria, in Yemen. Libya, I've seen it with refugees trying to get into Europe. You know, people are willing to take enormous risks to, to document what is happening to them and to the world around them to show the world. So I want to go back to something you said earlier, which really caught my ear and maybe was a bit surprising. You said, you know, this kind of work is the primary way that, you know, not only uh, us and the media are understanding this conflict, but also policymakers and decision makers, which is fascinating. So I'm wondering, like, how you think about the primary audience for your work and why, it, you know, why it would be that, that people like, no offense, but why people like you are able to find things that like intelligence services and governments wouldn't necessarily be picking up on? Like, what is it that makes your work so useful? Yeah, so... As I understand it, within government circles, within military circles, open source information has always been a, a strong source of information. Uh, it provides a kind of contextual basis on which other types of intelligence are placed. So, for example, human intelligence or signals intelligence. But you kind of read about members of the intelligence community talking about this and saying, you know, vast uh, the vast amount of information that they consume is based on open source information. You know, you, you don't need a... Uh, a spy plane uh, flying over the top of uh, Belarus when actually you've got someone on the ground taking a TikTok video of a train passing by with all those tanks in it. And finding it is really, or finding it and using it is really almost a secondary effect from understanding the digital environment. Once you understand where where the source of information are, then you can start finding them and tapping them and, and working on what the information actually means. So, for example, working out which something as basic as what what Twitter accounts to follow, what keywords to search for, what what dates to search for, you know, working out what, uh, so for example, social media platforms different people in different countries use. Uh, so, for example, if you are want to look at maybe pictures posted by Ukrainian special forces, then you'd go to Instagram because hey, they want to look cool, so they use Instagram. If you want to find teenagers posting about uh, tanks moving through the west of Russia, you go to TikTok because teenagers use TikTok. If you want to, you know, investigate airstrikes, sadly coalition airstrikes in Yemen, you you would use Facebook because most people in Yemen would use Facebook. And it's really understanding that information ecosystem that allows you to, to pull those threads and understand what's the most important piece of information and how best to use it. 
I I also just love the idea of like teens on TikTok making some you know high level spy in Belarus uh, totally redundant. Um, like James Bond is put out of commission by uh, soldiers posting on Instagram. I mean, people people were joking that TikTok was uh, should just be renamed Tank Talk because there were so many TikTok <laughs> videos of tanks and armed vehicles moving through Western Russia. God, yeah. So early on in the Russian invasion, there were a lot of a lot of commentary, a lot of hot takes among journalists and commentators about Ukraine as somehow, you know, the first online war and the first social media <laughs> war. Um, yeah. There obviously there are some new aspects to how this war is being waged, but as I think you you sort of just hinted, calling this the first online war is pushing it um, because, of course, there was a, a huge amount of contemporaneous online documentation happening of the Syrian civil war, which began in 2011. So I know you've done a lot of work on Syria, and I, I've seen that conflict described as the moment where open source research really took off. Can you tell us about the role of OSINT in Syria and what kind of work you were doing in that context? Yeah, sure. So the Syrian conflict was, you know, and the the Syrian revolution was where th- this kind of information really, uh, or these kind of techniques really kind of came of age. It, it really started in 2011, uh, along with the, the Libyan uh, civil war as well, with genuinely people arguing on the internet and wanting to prove each other wrong. So, you know, therefore developing the techniques of geolocation, uh, you know, working out where an image or video was placed exactly in, in space. Um, so you could say, hey, look, actually this, this uh, fighting group or this uh, particular group has taken this particular city and we can prove it because we have, you know, a video of them literally walking through the city uh, filming themselves. So you could say, hey, yeah, that city is, you know, therefore under control of this particular group. But it, it pretty rapidly developed from there because it was it was evident that, as, as I kind of described in terms of um, people's urge to witness, that there was a huge amount of information being in, being posted on social media showing, you know, events which may be atrocities, which uh, certainly were atrocities, which may be war crimes, and it became really evident that this kind of information should be should be captured and could potentially be used in in court. And the the kind of first step was, you know, how how do you actually preserve this? This is this stuff is being deleted off social media incredibly quickly. You know, when I think it was in 2017, YouTube turned on its automated algorithm, uh, moderation algorithm, it, it deleted, if I recall correctly, something like hundreds of thousands of, of pieces of content uh, regarding the, the war in Syria. You know, and a, a lot of these accounts were irreplaceable. You know, when you have a someone from Syria who's been, you know, documenting events around their village for kind of four or five years, and then, you know, their, their YouTube account gets uh, deleted or banned, and then, you know, maybe they have to flee or even in worst case scenario, they're killed. You know, that, that information is now gone forever. And so what we saw was the rise of organizations like the Syrian Archive, which is now part of Mnemonic. And what Mnemonic do is capture this kind of information and preserve it in, in a forensic way so that it could later be used useful in court. You know, they can present it later and say, hey, look, we, we've hashed this forensically. We can say that this video was captured on this date at this time from this website and it has not been altered since. And so therefore this could be useful as a piece of evidence in a, in a trial. And the amount of information they've collected is huge. The uh, number of videos or the length of videos about the Syrian, uh, Syrian civil war, you know, far exceeds the, the length of the actual war itself at this point. Uh, and in in the most, almost all of the most egregious uh, atrocities that I can recall, uh, with the exception of a few that, that happened within Islamic State territory, you know, a lot of these events were captured and very, very well documented by by people on the ground, some of whom the events were happening to in real time. And it became incredibly evident that that this information is going to be uh, relevant in court and is going to be relevant to holding people account, whether now in the future or as part of some kind of justice and reconciliation process in the future. Yeah, I think that uh, the YouTube removal of tens of thousands of hours of video uh, of the Syrian civil war, which is, you know, important documentation of war crimes, just like you were saying, is one of the like best examples of uh, how dependent we are on platforms and their content moderation, but also how we, you know, we so often focus on what's left up on platforms and that, you know, things need to be taken down, but the impact, particularly on marginalized communities, when things are improperly taken down as well. And I think, you know, we'd love to come back to that but i'd 
just like to sort of dig in a little bit more on the contrast between Syria and Ukraine here um, and ask you if there's anything different this time around. I mean, the, the peak of the Syrian civil war uh, was probably before TikTok or Tank Talk was even founded in 2016. So it seems like there must be something different. I'm, I'm curious how it changes the way that you go about your work. I think that probably there's more phones and the quality of the technology or the ubiquity of it may be different. Uh, and whether that, you know, in some ways, maybe that makes it harder. I don't know if there's like way too much information or how it has changed how you work between the two events. Yeah, so I mean, what we're seeing in Ukraine is a is a conventional uh, invasion by a force of, you know, uh, I think at the last count, shortly before the invasion, it was something like 190,000 Russian soldiers. You know, this is this is a full on conventional war, the likes of which Europe has not seen really since kind of 1945. And therefore, it's, it's unsurprising that the amount of information coming out from Ukraine about events there is is absolutely vast. It's overwhelming. We're capturing a tiny fraction of it, and it's still pretty pretty horrific. In terms of the kind of contrast to, to Syria, there there are a few actually. Um, as you mentioned, things basic things like the phones and the tech that is available means that you know the quality of video uh, and images is is a lot higher. There's also changes to, I think probably one of the most significant changes is the, the type of platforms that are being used. So rather than being initially posted on, on Twitter or uh, Facebook, I think the primary source of information that we're seeing or the primary kind of process that we're seeing is, you know, people taking these videos and images, these videos and images being sent to local aggregator sites, generally Telegram, and then this information being being published in Telegram and then videos from Telegram being posted on Twitter and Facebook. So you have this kind of um, process taking place of uh, people sending into a local aggregator, those aggregators then uh, publishing that information on these big Telegram broadcast groups, and then it being posted on, on Twitter and Facebook. So there's almost that, that extra step there. One, one thing I would note, actually, within Syria, we saw uh, lots of people who were local media activists uh, or who were citizen journalists would very frequently like understand what they're doing in terms of filming and, and taking pictures of, of these kinds of atrocities. Uh, they would be very clear about, uh, you know, where they were, what had just happened, what the date was. You know, they would open a video by saying, I am this person, I'm at this location, uh, this is what happened. Uh, and that kind of information is incredibly useful, not only in terms of the, the initial verification, but also potentially, you know, using that later in, again in, in, in court. And so much of this keeps referring back to. I haven't seen so much of that so far in Ukraine, but I think that is somewhat mitigated by the fact that there, there's a lot of other sources of information in Ukraine. So, for example, in, in Syria, you know, there is not Google Street View uh, pretty much anywhere, whereas in Ukraine, there is actually quite a lot of Google Street View. And so you can verify where events have taken place quite, quite quickly compared to some of the more remote places in Syria where, where these kind of events took place. So, yeah, it's a certainly changes in the way that information is coming through, uh, changes in the platform that we're seeing and changes in the kind of information associated with uh, with this kind of content. Yeah, I think the, the Google Maps example is a really good one because I, I remember one of the things early on that showed that Russian tanks were starting to move in was that there were traffic jams right um, along the Ukrainian border and that you could see that Ukrainians were trying to, to leave the country, which just makes it extremely visible. Yeah, I mean, I I actually checked that as well. I saw someone do it for one place, and I checked another, and yeah, boom, there was a great big traffic jam there. Yeah, it was pretty pretty punchy. I also wanted to ask about the change in just awareness of OSINT as a field from 2011 until today. I mean, I do think that the the commentary about how this is somehow the first online war is silly for all of the reasons that you've just described, but the visibility of OSINT seems much greater, um, or perhaps just the, the people who are participating in it. The community has expanded. Obviously, Bellingcat has been doing this work for a really long time, but you know, with, with Ukraine, we've seen just a lot of people who are totally fresh jumping in. Do you think that, is that right? Is there more public awareness of us this time around? And what kind of effect has that had? Yeah, no, absolutely that has. You know, seeing seeing people interested in the, the videos from, from Russia with the, the tanks moving through on uh, on trains, you know, seeing the, the satellite imagery, you know, which very, very clearly shows the, the buildup of troops and, and equipment and material. You know, that that is information that I think is quite easy to engage with. And also certainly with the satellite imagery, for example, you know, it's quite obvious, you know, 
when you have like 400 armored vehicles or 400 tanks lined up next to each other, that's a pretty pretty punchy image that I think pretty much anyone can engage with and understand the, the importance of. I think it's also that this this conflict is, firstly, it's close to Europe and it is you know relatively early on in the conflict. What we saw with Syria and Yemen as well was that you know after the kind of initial interest had faded, what we saw was people you know the same kind of information being being produced, um, but it simply wasn't really being engaged with by by general public because it's it's just pretty terrible. Uh, it's really horrible. It grinds you down, and we have not reached that point in in Ukraine yet. You know, it's still very very kind of early days of conflict. After you, you know you've been reading nothing but the kind of really horrible stuff that has happened in in both Syria and Yemen, uh, you know, you, you start to become not immune to it, but it becomes more difficult, I think, to engage with. Yeah, I also sort of share that concern about uh, what's going to happen once this just is, you know, the grind and it starts looking less like an action movie and more on on repeat. It will be um, fascinating to watch what happens with the the media cycles then. We talk a lot about misinformation on this podcast, and there's been no shortage of it during this crisis as well. Um, there have yeah. been images from other conflicts that have been recirculated as if they're images from Ukraine, and you yourself have written about the flurry of dubious stage events that appear to have been designed to implicate the Ukrainian armed forces and drum up military aggression uh, in the days before the first shots were fired. So I'm, uh, I'm wondering if you can talk about the kinds of things you're you're seeing and the effects that they have. Yeah, sure. So... Yeah, in the lead up to the conflict, what we saw was some really pretty <laughs> egregious stuff. So basically, the Russian state's narrative and the Russian backed separatist narrative was that Ukraine was being very aggressive and was planning to to invade the Donbass, so separatist held areas of the Donbass. And what we saw was a series of events that seemed to support this narrative. But it was really bizarre because a, a lot of these kind of events or statements were being debunked almost in real time especially by the community that you mentioned who, who kind of almost grew up in, in the days before the action invasion. And there are a few like particularly egregious examples of this. Um, so for example, on the 18th of February, the leaders of both the um, Donetsk People's Republic and the Luhansk People's Republic declared a general evacuation of civilians due to uh, Ukrainian aggression. In fact, one of the, like the, the DNR had actually said within the video, you know, today on February the 18th, the only problem was the the metadata of those videos was preserved because they'd been sent as files on Telegram, and the metadata demonstrated those those videos had actually been filmed on the sixteenth of February, so two days before this date, um, which was supposedly before a lot of these incidents demonstrating Ukrainian aggression. And we know that it was intended to mislead because one of the leaders actually states, you know, this is this is February the eighteenth. You know, this wasn't simply a mistake. This was a deliberate attempt to mislead. There are kind of like various other uh, examples which were quite questionable. Classic one was Polish-speaking saboteurs who attacked a sewage facility in an attempt to place a tank of chlorine, uh, chlorine gas, in order to fake a false flag attack. And apparently a video was captured from the body. And that, that video was also filmed, you know, days before the event apparently took place on the 18th of February. It was actually filmed on the 8th of February. And the video had had like um, the sound effects of explosions uh, added to it. Uh, the sound effects were actually from a Finnish, Finnish training exercise. And then possibly the most egregious example of that, we saw a report that an IED had been placed on the highway or the Donetsk highway and had detonated, uh, or this was placed by the Ukrainian army reportedly, uh, and then detonated, killing three civilians. And it's quite widely reported on by uh, separatist media as well as by Russian state media. The only problem was when you took a look at the the bodies, the three bodies within the vehicle, it was pretty clear that there was something off there. One of the bodies had actually had the, the top of their skull quite cleanly cut off, which is not what you'd expect to see in a directional IED or directional uh, improvised explosive device. So... Another another news organization uh, did an investigation, asked a forensic pathologist who said, yeah, that, that skull showed clear lines of autopsy uh, or clear indications of autopsy. You know, that is a pretty standard procedure with the very kind of specific cut marks, very clean cut marks. We also showed the, the video to forensic pathologists and they concluded, yeah, that, that body in the front had, you know, had undergone some kind of autopsy before being put in the vehicle. And also another uh, body in the back 
had had its uh, sternum cut open, which is another autopsy procedure. And so, it was, you know, these people were dead before they were put in the car. We also had an explosive weapons expert look at the, the scene. And he basically said it didn't look like the scene of an IED. It looked like a small charge had been uh, detonated. And then the car had basically petrol poured on it, uh, set on fire, and then and then shot with a rifle. And this was pretty egregious, you know, taking uh, what appear to be people who have undergone autopsy, placing them in a vehicle, and then faking an IED attack to try and make the Ukrainian army look like it's, it's being incredibly aggressive and killing civilians. But it's also pretty... How, how do I say this? This is precisely what the Russian state has accused uh, Syrians of doing to themselves with absolutely no evidence. It's just this incredible cynicism that these kind of uh, events are being faked in order to create this narrative of Ukraine as a aggressive state. And yet this is the very thing that the Russian state has accused Syrian civilians of doing with absolutely no evidence, indeed lots and lots and lots of evidence to the contrary. And we've seen that that continue in the last few weeks as well. Uh, we've seen Russian MOD, Russian state, uh, continue to accuse uh, Ukraine of you know, preparing chemical weapons attacks. Uh, and it's been this kind of standard constant drumbeat, you know, there'll be a claim every kind of two days. And again, that's exactly the same thing that we saw in Syria with the Russian MOD continuing to claim that various Syrian fighting groups and also first responders were preparing chemical weapons attacks uh, to the point where it, it became kind of absurd. And I, I think we have reached the point where people are able to to see that absurdity and know that it's completely, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But it is also a little bit frustrating that that is happening now and rather than kind of like a few years ago, six, seven years ago in Syria. I think the level of detail is really useful and I'm struck by the sort of varying levels of sophistication that you described and the varying levels of resource intensity that are required to debunk it. Like some of it is just, let's look at the metadata and February 18 is not the same as February 16th. And, um, you know, I'm not very technical and even I could probably manage that. But then you were talking a, a whole bunch of other things, uh, matching soundtracks to finish training videos and then things like getting uh, explosive experts to examine things, um, which sounds a lot more in-depth and, and resource intensive. And I'm wondering, is that mostly volunteer work? Like where does the where does all of this manpower and expertise come from? Is it just people pitching in because it's uh, so egregious and, and this is an opportunity to help? Yeah, so people were picking apart those kind of videos pretty, pretty quickly. I mean, the, with the metadata stuff that was spotted and then Obviously, then every single video, which was then published by the separatist uh, governments, was then, of course, the metadata was checked, which pinged a few more other videos. But with with the example of the the staged IED, that that was more kind of traditional journalism work. You know, it, it was pretty clear that the scene looked strange. Both people on Twitter noticed that. I noticed that. I used to be in the army, so I have a basic understanding of what like explosives will do. And it did look strange, but you know, it's a case of, hey, this looks strange, but I, I can't confirm that. Who would know that? Okay, let's let's call up an expert. Uh and so just, you know, emailed around people that I knew uh who had this kind of expertise and people who I didn't know who had this expertise and just asked them. And the answers came back were were pretty, pretty strong. So it's a it's a combination of both this kind of community that has grown up both in the, the shadow of Ukraine in 2014 and Syria, and then combining that with more kind of traditional journalistic techniques. So that gets to something that I'd wanted to ask you, which is how you think about the distinction between or the overlap between OSINT and journalism, especially because not only you've you've described some of the tools that you're using as journalistic techniques, but I've also seen more and more journalists, you know, taking the approach of doing some digging on different platforms and writing up what they find. The, the Washington Post, for example, had an interesting piece a few weeks ago, essentially explaining how they went about determining that a particular video, you know, was actually in Ukraine or that it had been repurposed from the war in Gaza a few years ago. Do you mm -hmm. think of the work you're doing as, as separate from journalism or related to it? Uh, I think of it as journalistic. Like I'm quite constantly called a journalist. I don't really think of myself as a journalist. I think it's important to note also that we don't really consider at Bellingcat, we don't really consider ourselves doing OSINT. We're not producing intelligence, you know, we're not informing any policymakers. We're we're doing this for 
uh, journalistic reasons. So we we refer to us doing this as open source investigation rather than open source intelligence. And I think a lot of journalists have, you know, starting to to use techniques because they've they've seen how powerful they can be. They they've seen groups like Bellingcat, like Air Wars, like Forensic Architecture, like the New York Times Visual Investigation Team like BBC Africa, I use these techniques to really great effect and they understand how powerful they can be, not just in terms of the actual kind of like pure investigation side, but also in in terms of, you know, working out where best to apply traditional journalistic skills. So for example, if you're if you're trying to find a particularly egregious event that happened in a particularly in a particular town, you know, you don't have to go to that town and then ask people about where this event happened, you know, like two years ago, because someone already geolocated it, you know, and you can plug in the coordinates into your GPS and go straight there. You you don't have to faff around with it. I, I think it probably helps as well that, that Bellingcat, we run our own training programs and we must have trained thousands of people by now, including quite a lot of journalists. Um, so I think we've uh, we've had quite quite an effect upon what kind of skills people people have and how they apply them. So going back to the question of misinformation, you know, there's going to be way more than you could ever possibly correct. And there's going to be sort of diminishing returns on correcting absolutely everything. And I'm wondering how you decide what to spend your time debunking, like what goes into what threshold there is or what kind of information you think is particularly important to correct or whether there's sort of certain factors that you consider in determining how much time and effort should you go into correcting a certain kind of uh, piece of information. Yeah, sure. For the most part, we don't actually really focus on doing debunks at all. You know, we we are not fact checkers. We we consider ourselves as conducting investigative journalism uh, or journalistic investigation. So we we don't really kind of carry out these kind of fact checks unless we we think it's a really important piece of information. So if a an event is uh, particularly egregious or is contested, uh, for example, yeah, we'll we'll take a look. Um, but for the most part, there's just so much poor or bad information out there that there's really not much point actually doing that kind of fact check uh, or fact checking it precisely because you know by the time you've done one you know there are 10 more lined up at your door um so yeah we'll, we'll focus on events that are contested events that are particularly egregious or sometimes ones that are just quite funny because they're they're so obvious so i'm curious you know how much you you don't publish um you know how how much it seems like this work obviously is very resource intensive you're doing a lot of digging to to figure out whether something did or did not happen in the way that it's been presented how much material is there that you do digging on and but end up not sort of setting out the facts on because you can't be totally confident that it happened the way that you think it did oh huge amounts uh i have hard drives full of half-finished investigations. There are many, many times anyone who's kind of been in this field knows the feeling where you've followed a thread and you followed it down a rabbit hole into the bowels of Facebook and you've ended up in some pretty weird and wacky groups and then you kind of look around and realize that you are absolutely no way near closer to discovering the piece of information you're trying to find. Yeah, there, there's a huge amount of work that goes on behind the scenes that is, you know, never comes public the vast majority of which is because you know there's there's not enough information there to uh to be confident about it and when we when we publish information you know we want to be be confident in its veracity so i want to ask about the people who are less trigger shy than you and sort of this um groundswell you know alongside the raised awareness of osin and and the work that's been going on and the availability of footage. I imagine there's a lot of uh, people, you know, I mean, there's uh, Twitter manages to find experts in absolutely everything, no matter the topic du jour. And I'm sure that there's a lot of people that suddenly think they're experts in open source intelligence work as well. Uh, and I'm curious, you know, whether, whether that's true um, and also <laughs> whether that makes it any harder for you, like whether there's all this sort of stuff coming out and people uh, claiming to have findings, you know, you are experts and you're, you know, holding back on a lot of stuff because of confidence levels um, but I'm sure there's many people that aren't as disciplined and how much of a challenge that is yeah so I'm, I'm a little bit kind of cautious here because I'm very aware that pretty much everyone here within Bellingcat started off doing this because you know they were just like spending a lot of time on the internet no one here uh, or actually very few people within Bellingcat have any kind of formal education in terms of open source uh, investigation or indeed intelligence or indeed journalism uh, it's something we've kind of worked out how to do ourselves and in fits and starts there are other people within social media who are in a very similar position so for example there's um 
uh, an account called Calibra Obscura. He is absolutely fantastic at identifying small arms uh, and other weapon systems, uh, just incredibly, incredible life detail. And he is a, I think, uh, an English guy in his early 20s who I don't think has ever actually fired a rifle himself. And yet this is a person who very reputable organizations will go to for to, to identify weapon systems because he's so good at it. And he's demonstrated that by, you know, the articles he's written, by his commentary on Twitter, and by the fact that you know, he, he is right almost all the time. So like, yes, you do see a lot of people who get on Twitter and claim to be, you know, an Ozint account and put Ozint in their, their Twitter bio and turn out to be absolutely useless. But I'm also very wary of saying for people, you know, not to engage with it online or not to try and like try and reach that status because I know there's so many people who've reached a status of, yeah, what I would uh, quite happily call an expert simply by spending a lot of their own time doing it. That account has talked about Calibra Obscura. He still does this in his spare time. He still has a, I think, pretty normal job on the side as well. And I think, although I could say that uh, sometimes these kind of, you know, people call themselves Ozint experts uh, make things harder. Sometimes they do because, you know, sometimes they'll end up with like a tweet going viral or something like that. But for the most part, it, it doesn't. It makes it easier because you have a, this community uh, with some people who say, for example, are absolutely unbelievably good at geolocation, you know, who can look at a picture of a field in Syria with maybe like part of one wall and then work out precisely where the photo was taken within a couple of minutes to people like Calibra Obscura who can, you know, identify weapon systems from, you know, a tiny, tiny corner of, um, you know, of the, the stock or something. And that, that kind of interaction is something that has made the open source community so powerful because it is you know, open information. Uh, there's much less need to keep it confidential. And so information is shared a lot more than you would find in, say, traditional investigative journalist circles. Uh, and that creates this kind of uh, fission which allows more free-flowing ideas and information. So, yeah, there are some uh, downsides to it. There are the kind of people that, that you talked about. But on, on the whole, it's definitely a, a good thing. So early on in the the war in Ukraine, this community hit a little bit of a, a hiccup because Twitter started suspending a lot of open source investigations accounts for unspecified violations of its rules. And I know you were tracking these accounts that were taken down and tweeting about it. Can you talk about what you were seeing there and, and why it mattered? Did, did Twitter end up fixing it all? Did it get better at this as the conflict dragged on? Because I think this speaks to the sort of tension of, you know, a community being able to share information and speak to one another on a platform, but then the platform's rules potentially being turned against that community. Yeah, so that was really strange. We, what we saw were a lot of basically aggregator accounts. So these are uh, accounts that will take information from out elsewhere. So for example, those, those Telegram accounts, those Telegram broadcast accounts from Facebook groups and so on, and then repost on Twitter. If you know which one of these aggregator accounts to follow, uh, and also which are trustworthy, then you can get like a pretty decent flow of uh, information, which is likely verifiable. And yeah, what we saw over a period of like a few days were a lot of these accounts being uh, suspended. Uh, some were then being reinstated and suspended immediately again, which was really bizarre. I'd never seen anything like that before. And ultimately kind of Twitter said that it was uh, an error and they shouldn't have been suspended. But it is, you know, I still don't know why they were suspended in the first place. Like, why why were they suspended? What what was that error? It's quite frustrating trying to deal with these social media companies who, who seem to think it is completely fine for someone to, uh, you know, basically incite violence against, say, first responders in Syria and not have their accounts suspended. And then someone who is providing, you know, very high level of service in terms of like verified information about events in, in conflict areas you know, with something like, I think, what like the biggest one, I think Conflict News had something like 400,000 followers, uh, you know, ends up getting suspended theoretically with no appeal. Uh, it, it's really bizarre. I still have absolutely no idea how these this moderation actually happens, to be honest. Yeah, so I'm curious whether you feel like you're working with platforms or working against them. You know, they're obviously kind of, I mean, the fundamental basis of a lot of your work. It's where all of the information is being posted, you know, whether it's uh, TikTok or Instagram or Facebook or, or Twitter. But also, you know, you are um, a victim of their content moderation rules or content moderation accidents. 
and you were talking about how you know and we were talking about how how much of the stuff that gets taken down um and and you know we don't even know how much of the yeah. stuff is being taken down what you know incredible mass of evidence uh or information no one will ever see uh and then the the stuff that you're archiving or people like mnemonic are archiving you know really quickly before it is disappeared uh by automated tools and so i'm curious you know whether you found given that osin is becoming uh, more there's more awareness about it it's becoming more prevalent and so important whether you've found platforms any easier to work with how you find your positioning with respect to them whether they're trying to help you or whether it's sort of like they have their own interests and they're you know managing their own public relations crises through all of this and the OSIN ramifications are sort of really secondary to that yeah it's quite quite a wide-ranging answer um so I actually wrote my my um, master's uh, thesis on the interaction of uh, civil society with social media. So I could talk about this. I could wax lyrical about this for quite a long time. And basically, social media, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, whatever, uh, has become the the public sphere in which civil society interacts. It's become an incredibly important space. And you know, this space is now digital. It's online uh, rather than physical. Okay, so it's changed location, but it's still essentially the public sphere in which civil society interacts, which makes it incredibly important. And I think far more important than, say, for example, Jack Dorsey or, or Zuckerberg really understood when they when they, they put these platforms together. Yeah, and, and dealing with them has been intensely frustrating. On one hand, they've created environments in which people like myself, organizations like Bellingcat can, can flourish, but they've also, uh, you know, resulted in some pretty negative effects. You know, I don't think I need to really talk about kind of like what Facebook has done in terms of like, uh, you know, how it is controlled information flows, uh, which have potentially contributed towards atrocities. You know, Myanmar is is the obvious case for that. So, uh, yes, it's quite, quite difficult because these platforms hold just vast amounts of power. And I don't think they really understand it still. And the lack of transparency about how they make their decisions and what decisions are made is intensely frustrating to me. I think they have improved genuinely from what I've seen from compared to say 2017, 2018. Uh, we are seeing more engagement. We are seeing, I think, improvement. You know, Twitter's statement that, uh, you know, a mistake had been made in the reinstation of these accounts was really welcome. And I don't think that is something that would have happened, say, like four or five years ago. So that that is very welcome and, and good, but it's still incredibly frustrating because so much of this is regulated by uh, really opaque rules. And to, to kind of like go back to that idea of, of public sphere as a, as a physical space, it's, you know, like being in the pub and discussing with your friends about a particular you know subject, and then the landlord comes over and then kicks you out and maybe every other person called Tom out as well, and then never explains why. You can understand why you'd be a little bit frustrated with it. Um, so yeah, it can be frustrating to deal with it. It can be frustrating in terms of yeah those opaque rules. But I think that there has been some improvement over the last last few years. But there needs to be more still. I think you're totally right that they have or had no idea what they were getting into or what they've created. You know the the caricature that of these platforms in popular conversation is like these evil masterminds that set out to rule the world and are now mind controlling all of us. But I think often they're just sort of hapless people being buffeted uh, by world events. Although, you know, like you say, this is, this stretches back a long time now and there's sort of really no excuse uh, for still being so hapless about it. And the opacity is really concerning, especially in, you know, contexts like this where government roles are also really prominent you know the government the, the platforms are on the phone uh to european and other government leaders often doing what they ask which obviously creates sort of other various concerns in, in freedom of expression um but i'm curious you know given that you wrote your, your masters on this um you know i would love to hear you wax lyrical about it forever but you know we do have limited time um so what kind of asks would you have from platforms you know you mentioned the opacity a couple of times um which i'm sure would really help to just know what's going on but at the same time would knowing the rules 
rules really help if the rules still suck? Like if they're still really, you know, focusing on their interests of like removing gory material, does it really help that we really know that if they're still getting rid of stuff that could be, you know, really important evidence? Is there something else that you'd like to see in terms of whether it's, you know, creating archives or, you know, partnerships or access for certain researchers such as yourself? What would make this better? <laughs> yeah, so obviously transparency about rules, specifically also about rules around specific countries and specific languages. I think anyone who speaks Arabic understands that Arabic appears to be uh, treated and moderated in a different way to English. And that is something that I think is, is really kind of significant and, and potentially quite, well, actually quite sinister. I, I think that is a, a result of you know, Islamic State propaganda spreading on the on the platforms, uh, these various platforms so much. But it, it also seems pretty evident to me that there is a difference in moderation that is not publicly acknowledged, um, which to me is, is a little bit, is pretty concerning. I'd like to see more engagement with civil society. Uh, this has improved. I'd like it to improve more. You know, at the moment, there are a few kind of, I wouldn't describe them as gatekeepers, but kind of key people you have to approach in order to you know, talk to someone at Google or someone at Facebook, and it can be very, very difficult to actually find these people and, you know, get time to talk to them. And yeah, I'd like to not see just the wide scale deletion of content. Instead, what I'd like to see is the the preservation of that kind of content. And I'm not entirely sure how access would work, but some kind of limited access. You know, when YouTube says, hey, this channel is actually um, a propaganda channel spreading blatant disinformation. We're just going to delete it. They're not just deleting the videos. They're deleting all the information about the account, about what particular themes were there, who engaged with that account, you know, who that account was targeting, all this kind of information, which is is useful for researchers like us and other other people in civil society. So one thing that we also wanted to ask about was the role of messaging platforms like Telegram, which works in a, a very different way than, you know, platforms like Twitter or Facebook, and which has been a, a huge part of this conflict. How does that change your work or your methods? Yeah, I think it makes it a little bit easier. Uh, you have, I think, accounts that are easier to interact with in terms of they're just broadcasting information. They're basically acting as a, a really effective aggregator like you would see on, see on Twitter, except it's, it's easier to interact with. You can download the media more easily. Some of the media still has its metadata intact, which is not something you generally see on, or not something you see on, on Facebook and Twitter. And the only issue is it's a little bit more difficult to search uh, rather than, than Twitter or Facebook. So for example, I, possibly not the best example, but it's, it's quite a good one anyway, I find. In the kind of later days of the Islamic State's propaganda campaign, you know, trying to to find... Uh, after they've been forced off Twitter, forced off Facebook, trying to find uh, Islamic State channels and Telegram became a little bit of a, basically a little bit of a challenge. You'd have to kind of go through, find a channel, find the next channel, find the link, find the next channel, and then just keep aggregating them because they'd then start to be deleted almost as fast as you could find them. And so, uh, yeah, it became a little bit, it, Telegram is still not the easiest place to find the right channel on. But once you've found the channel, it's a lot easier to interact with that information. And so just to finish, you know, we talked earlier about the worry about what might happen as people's attention turns away and this drags out. And obviously I anticipate your attention won't be turning away and this is something that you're going to continue to focus on. And so I'm curious what you will be watching, what your priorities are going forward, if there's anything that sort of becomes more important as this goes on and isn't just starting or what are the kinds of things that you expect to see over the next little while you know especially as like you know different you know maybe different actors are using different kinds of messaging or what might change as as this drags out um yeah i think it's quite difficult to predict this really in my kind of previous experience of uh, Syria and Yemen, it's a very, very different context. Um, for a lot of people, it's a lot more remote. You know, if you're uh, just somebody on the streets of London who has no connection to to Syria, you know, you sometimes have to kind of uh, try and work out the best way to say, hey, you should you should really care about what, what is happening there. I think with Ukraine, it's much more immediate. You know, I, I think for, for some people, the fact that it's in Europe, that, that matters more to them, as, as disappointing as that may be. You know, people are are more interested in events that are more likely to affect them. 
Uh, and so we'll, I think we'll retain some level of interest within Ukraine and, and what is happening there. I think we're going to see the war get a lot nastier as it continues. You know, fighting is already starting to kind of push into cities, Kiev, Kharkiv. And when you have fighting like that taking place in cities, you end up killing a lot of people, almost, you know, the vast majority of which is civilians. And that's going to result in a lot of resentment, uh, a lot of anger, absolutely righteous anger. And that's going to result more likely or more likely to result in atrocities from on both sides. And once you start getting that that kind of flow of atrocities, people start to kind of question what, what is happening there, become more polarized about who's doing what. What we aim to do is to try and capture information about those kind of atrocities so that, you know, later there might be some kind of justice or accountability mechanism. We might be able to put this information towards that and hold people to account for their actions. But yeah, I think it's pretty inevitable that as time goes on, it's going to get nastier and nastier. It's going to look more like, you know, kind of um, Sarajevo, more like Chechnya. And when it gets to that kind of like really dirty, horrible fighting, you know, at that point, this kind of, say, almost like enthusiasm for for the war, though I'm not entirely sure if it's fair to characterize it in that way, I think will we'll start to wane. Yeah, just on that that last point, whether to characterize it as enthusiasm for war, enthusiasm for uh, Ukrainian statehood or, or something else, I, I, yeah, I don't think it's fair to kind of characterize it as enthusiasm for war, actually. But I, I think whatever that is, it will start to, it will start to wane as, as the, the fight drags on and it starts to get really nasty. On that unfortunate note, I think we're going to have to close. Nick, thank you so much for coming on. Cool. Yeah, no dramas. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare podcast series in our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare podcast feed and in our separate Arbiters of Truth podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. Remember to subscribe to the separate feed so you can find the new episodes right away when they come out. The Lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Today, March 17th, on Lawfare Live, our weekly virtual event, senior editor Scott Anderson will answer any question you have about sanctions but were too afraid to ask. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6, The Aftermath. And check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. You can also buy Lawfare swag at thelawfarestore.com. This podcast is produced by Jen Pacha Howell, and our audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening.